pot party. The trippers, the grasshoppers, the hip ones, all gathered in secrecy and flying high as a kite. Hello and welcome to Trippin' Through Time with Randall and Stuart. And uh, this is the podcast where we talk about the history, science, and culture behind psychoactive drugs. So this is our first episode ever, so I think we want to start by just introducing ourselves. Like I said, I'm Randall. And um, so basically, uh, I graduated in psychology. I have a minor in chemistry. And I'm just, a, a, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty interested in this whole drug thing. I think it's pretty crazy that such a small substance of, of certain things can have such diverse effects on our body and brains and reality, really. So basically, that's what interests me. And then we thought we could do a podcast where we blend my chemistry knowledge and about that with some of Stuart's things. So here's uh, Stuart. Yeah, so I'm Stuart. I graduated with a degree in environmental policy and a minor in political science, so nothing really history-related. But history has always just been a, an interest of mine and something I like to read about and talk about. So I thought, like Randall just said, it would be nice to, to blend these interests together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess that's a little bit about us. And so now let's go ahead and kick off our first episode ever. Mm-hmm. So this first episode is titled The History of LSD. Part one. There uh, may be a couple more parts. We don't know yet. Um, and our subtitle is From Fungus to Bicycle Day. And hopefully by the end of the episode, you'll kind of know what that means. Okay, so basically, let's start at the beginning. All right, so let's set the scene. The year mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. 1518. 1518. And we are in Strasbourg, Strasbourg, which nowadays is in Alsace-Lorraine in France. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Back then, this was in the Holy Roman Empire. Okay. And one random day, this woman, woman, one woman, <coughs> named Miss Trophea, I don't think people know her first name, she just started dancing in the streets. Okay, interesting. And it started out kind of slowly, they said. She was just kind of stepping around, doing a weird little, you know, like, shy person dance. Yeah, just a little shuffle back and exactly. forth. Like the high school dance. I don't know whether I should get, you know, right. jiggy with it. I'm just kind of, eh. But... Mm-hmm. It gradually grew and grew, and before you know, you knew it, she was straight up all out dancing oh, in, okay. in the street. No music, no anything. Well, maybe not for not for her. music in her head. Not maybe. for the layman, yeah. Just, <laughs> and by the end of the week, there was thirty four people that had also joined her in dancing the streets. Dang! And just as an interesting side note, most of these people were women. We mm-hmm. don't really know why. Okay. And again, no music, no anything. Ooh. Just all of a sudden, dancing. Within a month, there were 400 people dancing. Dang, just a mass dance. You know, what was that thing um, back in the day, like flash mobs? You yeah, flash mobs. It was like That's an ancient flash 2015 mob. 2015 or something, and <laughs> yeah. they went away? Back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um, now, we, we get some sources that say people are actually dying of this. Okay. Some people say as many as 15 people a day were dying from things like heart attacks, strokes, mm-hmm. And just other dehydration, perhaps, because people weren't stopping. Yeah, there's a whole new meaning to dance to your drop. <laughs> nice. However, uh, some contemporary sources we have, or at least the ones we have, don't necessarily mention people dying. Okay. So it's not really known for sure. Okay. But it, it definitely could have happened. Um, and at the time, you know, we're in 1518, so our the medical practice is nowhere near what it is today. Mm-hmm. And people thought that this was hot blood. 
Hot blood. And that's what the physicians, like, all these people have hot blood. They ruled out curses and other... You know, <laughs> I'm glad they yeah, ruled that out. like, this isn't a curse. Definitely not a curse. I've seen curses and this is <laughs> not this it. This is not it. And so they thought it was hot blood. And a common uh, cure for hot blood back then was to bleed you with either leeches or they would just cut cut you and let mm. you bleed out. Just cut you. <laughs> cut you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the physicians were like, either because there was too many people to do that to or they thought this was a slightly different case, they mm-hmm. thought the cure for this was to just let them keep dancing and, in Go. fact, encourage them to dance. All right. That's a, that's a weird <laughs> treatment if I've ever heard one. Yeah. And so they actually cleared out some of the markets and some of the halls and went so far as to build a wooden stage for wow. these people to dance on. Wow. Now, this could have been probably the worst thing they could have done because right. okay. if this was a communicable disease and getting all these people together in one space is obviously a very bad idea because it helps it spread and it centralizes it in one location. So in reality, this could have made whatever it was a lot worse, but they didn't know what it was. And to this day, we still don't really know what it is, but one pretty strong theory is that it was because of a fungus called ergot. Okay. So, yeah, I guess a little bit about ergot. Um, Ergot, or for the Latin people out there, Calaviceps purpura, it's the ultimate source of the major molecular component of LSD. Um, And so we'll kind of get to how do we start with this fungus and go to one of the most potent semi-synthetic drugs we've ever made. Um, so basically, ergot is this fungus, and it forms black or dark brown spur-like things on the ears of rye. Um, and this ears of rye uh, are found when you harvest it, they can infect whole batches when you make like rye flour. Um, and so part of the reason why it may have affected so many people is that there'd be one contaminated batch of flour. So basically they called this, or later on we call this ergotism, and this is a disease associated with eating this ergot contaminated rye. So symptoms of this disease include convulsions and gangrene and hallucinations which kind of point um to maybe in the future where we get you know lst is also marked by uh hallucinations so basically ergotism was uh especially prevalent in the middle ages where rye became the major grain consumed by the lower classes of european mainland so including germany austria czechoslovakia poland and russia And uh, a little bit more about the disease. It manifests in one or two forms. So there's gangrenous or convulsive. And so gangrenous is basically you get gangrene. So extreme constriction of peripheral blood flow. Um, And this leads to swelling and intense burning pains. And eventually your blood is so constricted that there's no blood going to your extremities. And you uh, that leads to atrophy of the limbs. So pretty great way to die. And then you also have the other form, which is convulsive. So if you're lucky to get this, you have excruciating muscle spasms and diarrhea with delirium and hallucinations. Wow. So that sounds pretty... uh, sucks. I'm not sure which one I would uh, go for. (laughs) Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I'd probably pick the the delirium and hallucinations. Both are fatal, though? I mean, both can be fatal, yes. Hmm. Yes. Um, So... There, so basically we have this disease. We kind of know a little bit about it. It's from this fungus. So now let's kind of talk about how these major outbreaks of this disease and kind of some more examples of where we think this disease popped up in history. Mm-hmm. 
So one of the first uh, mentions of Urgot that we find is 600 BC in ancient Assyria, which is around modern-day Syria. Okay. I don't know where that is, but... You know where that is. (laughs) Come on. I don't. Okay. Well, it's kind of by Turkey. Oh, now I I know where that is. The Levant. I don't know where that is. (laughs) Anyway, um, so it first popped up in 600 BC on these uh, cuneiform tablets, which we still have today and could uh, decipher. And they talked about finding these nauseous postules on ears of grain, mm-hmm. which caused symptoms similar to what Randall just described. Okay. Uh, 250 years later, a Persian chronicler named Parsis uh, described something similar and uh, a nauseous postule. And he said that this caused women to, um, who were pregnant to lose their child and oftentimes die in childbirth. Oh, okay. So that's actually pretty interesting because um, in 1808, John Stearns, a doctor from New York, actually was using ergot fungus as a treatment for um, both uh, inducing abortion and reducing blood flow when Mm. you uh, gave birth. So this is really interesting uh, that, you know, maybe this, he probably learned about this and it's like, I could use this. And there were some... um some mentions of you actually using it as a contraceptive, but I hmm. bet that'd be pretty dangerous. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not pregnant, but I have hallucinations yeah. and I lost my arms. <laughs> yeah. After this, we don't really hear much from Ergot until 857. And I, I tried to find some stuff about Ergot in, in Rome, hmm. but it doesn't seem to be that prevalent. Maybe that's because they had higher standards. You know, that's why we don't have it today is okay. because we, we look and examine the rye we eat before just eating it. And okay. so maybe Romans had higher standards. It's not really known, right. but... I mean, they were pretty pretty ahead of their time. Exactly. So it then kind of pops up in 857 in Germany, mm-hmm. followed by cases in Scandinavia, in um, the Czech Republic, modern-day Czech Republic, mm-hmm. and places like that. And then about 100 years later, in 944, there was one of the most famous and biggest outbreaks in Aquitan, Aquitan, Aquitan in France. Aquitaine. <laughs> <laughs> And they think that up to 40,000 people actually died of uh, this ergot poisoning in Aquitan. Yeah. So that was one of the most devastating ones that we have written down. Wow. Wow. All right. So in 1095, there was actually an order of monks established to deal with this ergot outbreak. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, It became... became, Fuck. It Became? Is that a word? Became, yeah. Became? I don't know if that's the word I want. You need a drink. (laughs) (laughs) It was... Fuck me. So, throughout the Middle Ages, ergot poisoning was known as St. Anthony's Fire. Okay. And it was so prevalent that they actually established an order of monks just to deal with this. Okay. And they made a bunch of hospitals where they could treat people. Hmm. And I think throughout the Middle Ages, the 10 hundreds and, and probably to about the 14 hundreds... They actually established over 300 hospitals just to deal with this. Yeah, this is a pretty big problem. Yeah. And real quick, before we move on, I just want to touch on some other um, historical outbreaks of Ergot. Okay, yeah. So in 1722, there was a war between the Tsar of Russia and the Ottoman Empire, oh. modern-day Turkey. I always like the Ottoman Empire because there's the Ottoman Empire. <sighs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> and... Russia had this massive army that they were moving down towards the Ottomans, and all of a sudden, they had to retreat. The Ottomans didn't know why. They just thought they were lucky. And we now hear stories of the people in the Russian army, all of a sudden, their hands and feet falling off. Oh, 
And they described his hmm. symptoms very similar to frostbite. Okay. okay. And nowadays, looking back on that, we know, oh, they had ergot poisoning. Yeah, it sounds like gangrene to me. Yeah, exactly. And they probably knew back then because they, they retreated very quickly trying to find fresh grain that wasn't infected. Oh, okay. So they knew so, there was probably something up. Exactly. And that pretty much halted this this retreat. Um, and then there's some examples of it happening in the French Revolution, I think because there was a lot of uh, probably lack of regulation after the monarchy fell. Mm. Ergot became very widespread. Okay. And most of this seemed like it was gangrenous because there's a lot of examples of people's hands, feet, nose, ears just wow. falling off. Yeah, all the extremities. Yeah. And they described it back then as frostbite, hmm. but it was in the summer. So. <laughs> Not cold summers back then. Yeah, they had real cold <laughs> fucking global warming. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad it's happened. Just kidding. I know. Um, all right. So I guess we're going to fast forward a little here. Uh, get from We're going to start transitioning from fungus to actually what was actively synthesized and extracted from this uh, fungus. So in 1904, we're skipping way forward, a 29-year-old Henry Dale joined the Burroughs Welcome Research Labs in London. So his goal, along with George Barger was to attempt to identify the active principal component of ergot. So what in ergot is making uh, all these symptoms happen? What is causing this disease? So, in fact, he crystallized what he thought uh, was to be the active component in ergot and named it ergotoxine. So, however, ergotoxine, and we found this out later on, was proved to be a mixture of three different ergot alkaloids. So in the end, the real progress came from a pharmaceutical company um, later on called Sandoz. So basically, um, we'll, we'll have to talk a little bit about alkaloids is just a chemical uh, compound. Most active uh, substances in your body uh, or drugs are usually alkaloids. What I wanted to talk about is this ergotoxine actually proved to be a mixture of three different um, ergot uh, compounds and one of them was indeed ergoline and i i think Stuart, you talked about um that you wanted to talk about ergoline coming yeah up. yeah now yeah um yeah so there's some pretty interesting findings throughout history of this ergoline thing uh one of the earliest was what was found in a what's called a bog body hmm. and these were areas around uh, Celtic cultures, I think uh, modern-day France, um, Gaul, that kind of area. And they would put people in these bogs, and they're incredibly well-preserved because of the lack of oxygen. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I remember, like, the, the, they're like mossy bogs, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And they look a lot like mummies. They're incredibly well-preserved. Wow. And a lot of these people were ritually sacrificed. And they're so well-preserved that we can actually cut open their stomachs, and wow. see what was in there prior to them being sacrificed. Wow. And we actually found so ergoline. A turkey sandwich in there? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Ergoline. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so, you know, maybe this ergoline had to do with ritual sacrifice. They got these people tripping out before they oh, okay. killed them. Oh, okay. And they yeah. also, sorry, think that a lot of these Greek mystics, so you think the oracles on Mount Delphi and stuff, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They think these people might have been ingesting ergoline if they found a way to get it from ergot to ergoline. Yeah, I mean, if if you can extract some of those things that aren't, 
you know, causing gangrene yeah. and all this other bad shit, uh, you get, you know, eventually something that probably just acts on the central nervous yeah. system. Something probably pretty great uh, causes hallucinations. Yeah. And that's kind of where we're going with this is how can we change this molecule enough um, and we'll see with some very brilliant scientists yeah. that they did end up doing this. Yeah, like I would not trust ancient chemists to turn no, this no. deadly poison into a fun drug. I mean, it's yeah, not, just, not worth it to me. Trust me, trust me. Uh, I made it yeah. good. I know that guy's feet just fell off, but this is different. <laughs> this is different. I mixed it with some water. <laughs> yeah, and... yeah. I'd, I'd pass. Hard pass. <laughs> yeah, um, but so let's go ahead and talk about where this ergoline and some other uh, alkaloids from the ergot fungus actually started really getting researched into the pharmaceutical uh, area. So in 1917, a guy by the name of Arthur Stoll was the head of a research laboratory at Sandoz. Again, this is Sandoz is the French pharmacy or sorry, Swiss pharmaceutical company. Mm-hmm. Um, and believe it, they're still around today. The, wow. the other day I, I had some pills that, uh, they're they're prescribed to me uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that were from uh, Sandos. Wow, are they still in Switzerland? Uh, I I believe headquarters is, but now they're a you know worldwide yeah, company. Right, right. Yeah, wow. Um, they've got a whole bunch of different places, but yeah, they still there's still some in, in Switzerland. Huh. Um, so basically, they have synthesized the first pure ergot alkaloid. So you know, back in the day, old Henry Dale was like, oh, I got ergotoxine, there it is. But these guys were like, no, 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 no. Ergotoxins, three different alkaloids. We actually synthesized the first pure one alkaloid. Do you know why they wanted to do this? Like what what made them want to... How do they know that there might be something more to ergot than just gangrene? And- well, as, as we'll find out, um, a lot of it's just hunches. And okay. a lot of it, you just start with these things. You know, a lot of, we'll, we'll kind of come back to this, but if when we do talk about like benzodiazepines, uh-huh. they started from dye. Like, to dye your clothes. Oh, wow. You know, and it's so strange because it's like that that doesn't make any sense. You know, something that makes a color also is a central nervous system depressant. Right. Um, But all these things really start from weirdly basic compounds. Mm. Um, And I think they got a kind of a hint of this because of what we talked about, about diseases. And obviously it was causing some sort of hallucinations. Yeah. And. Stoll again, or Stearns um, in 1808, again, used it for this pregnancy thing. So a pharmaceutical mm. company goes, well, can we make, um, you know, if during birth this is causing lower blood flow, mm-hmm. maybe it constricts blood vessels. What can we do with that? Can we just get it to constrict blood vessels? That might be marketable as, say, a migraine medicine. Right. And sure enough, so when they synthesized, um, they named this pure ergot alkaloid um, ergotamine. Hmm. And it proved to have extremely good vasoconstricting effects. Hmm. And it rapidly found an important use for treating migraine. Oh, wow. So, when they figured this out, they synthesized it, isolated it, and in 1961, they started to sell it as a migraine medication. Wow. So this is kind of how it works, you know? They, um, you start with a basic thing and try to isolate something very specific, and then they market it. So Wait, 1961? Yeah. So it was a long time later. It was. It was. So Do they the, still... Do oh, they... sorry. Excuse me. Uh-huh. In 1917, he started researching it, and they synthesized the first... Um, the first thing in 1917. Mm-hmm. However, the chemical structure 
was not determined until okay. 1951. And then, so they Arthur Stoll extracted it, but it was actually synthesized in 1961. Ah, okay. So, so uh, they actually managed to create it from basic chemical components see, rather than extract it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I guess now let's enter. We're still at Sandoz and mm-hmm. the pharmaceutical company. Let's enter uh, Albert Hoffman. Now mm-hmm. he's a Swiss chemist and he joined Sandoz following the completion of his PhD at the University of Zurich in 1929. Mm. Um, I don't know. Maybe you want to set the scene a little bit about what Switzerland was like in, you know, 1929 yeah. was the general thing going on there. Yeah, so obviously, well, not obviously, this was right <clears throat> about 10 years after the end of World War One, which was the, um, Germany and Austria-Hungary and the Ottoman Empire versus the West, versus France, England, mm-hmm. and eventually the United States. Mm-hmm. And millions of people died. France had a million military deaths. England had I, around 500,000. The United States had 120,000 in just nine months of combat. Oh, wow. So it was an incredibly devastating war. It just wiped out the infrastructure and the economy of mainland Europe, except for Switzerland, because they were able to remain neutral. That's right. So they were probably one of the few places remaining that still had a somewhat normal economy that wasn't totally converted to wartime. They weren't just making ammunition and shells. Mm -hmm. So I imagine they had the time and energy to... Instead, have things like a pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, the the Swiss definitely were one of the first um, powerful uh, worldwide pharmaceutical yeah. uh, industries. And we'll see later on that Germany really did blossom out of this as a pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, we'll see in World War II, all these pharmaceutical industries started making things for the war effort. Right. And a lot of scientists were, um, is it extradited? Um, they were Jewish, and they actually oh. got kicked out, and research got set back by like twenty years. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, um, but we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Okay, and in other podcasts. Um, so basically, we're in Switzerland, nineteen twenty nine, right after World War One. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, the mentor Arthur Stoll, who uh, did come up with ergotamine, he isolated it for the first time. Uh, Albert Hoffman is mentored by him, and. It, at Sandoz, Hoffman was tasked with exploring further novel semi-synthetic derivatives of lysergic acid. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. How do we get from lysergic acid? You know, we were doing ergot, ergotamine lysergic acid. Yeah. Well, basically, um, for for lack of a, you know, we don't want to get too deep in the chemistry here, but ergotamine um, does have a carboxylic acid at the mm. end of it. Mm-hmm. And so that carboxylic acid... It's it's an acid, okay? And then also, because of the name, you're basically hydro. Uh, you're doing a hydrolysis of ergoline, mm-hmm. and that will create the the li on hydrolysis makes lysergic. Okay. So basically, we're, we're it's very similar to ergotamine, but now we're going to call it lysergic acid. Okay. So he was, uh, you know, tasked with semi-synthetic derivatives. Find more about this lysergic acid. Um, and an intermediate, this is an intermediate in the biosynthesis of all the ergot alkaloids. So in 1938, he synthesized LSD-25, lysergic acid diethylamide-25, as it was the 25th substance that he had made. So 
He thought the drug may have analeptic actions. This was a respiratory stimulant. Um, and he thought this because the structure is similar to nicotinic acid diethylamide. And this was already been used and was known to have um, this effect, this analeptic effect. So when tested on mice, it seemed to possess no interesting effects. So the compound was shelved. Mm. But this is interesting. This is something about the old genius of Albert Hoffman. He couldn't get LSD out of his head. And in 1943, he went about making it again. And uh, this is what he reported uh, to his superior, Arthur Stoll, after uh, he made it. All right. I'm going to read a little quote by the man himself. He says, Last Friday, April 16th, 1943, I was forced to interrupt my work in the laboratory in the middle of the afternoon and proceed home, being affected by a remarkable restlessness combined with a slight dizziness. Hmm. At home, I lay down and sank into an unpleasant, intoxicated-like condition, hmm. characterized by an extremely, extremely stimulated imagination. Hmm. In a dreamlike state, with eyes closed, I found the daylight to be unpleasantly glaring. Hmm. I perce- perceived an uninterrupted stream of fantastic picture- wow. pictures. Extraordinary shapes with intense kaleidoscopic play of colors. After some two hours, this condition faded away. Oh wow, that's pretty crazy. So yeah, so basically, this this is he's getting a little taste of what LSD may uh, do. And so later, uh, Arthur Stahl, or sorry, Albert Hoffman, he realized that this experience must have been due to a small amount of the substance he was synthesizing mm-hmm. at the time, LSD-25, on his hand. So on April 19th, 1943, Hoffman was like, I'm going to take more of it. You said this guy was extremely meticulous. <laughs> right, yes. How did he get a drop of it on his hand? Do you think he actually, do you think that's true? You know, I think, you, you know, you, know, you got to say to your superior, oh, it just must have dropped <laughs> right. on my hand, but... I think Albert Hoffman must have seen something in the structure yeah. of this molecule that made him think, hmm, there's something to this. Yeah. And I, I don't think it was a mistake. I, 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 I don't think, think it was think on so purpose. Either, yeah. yeah. So Hoffman took um, a larger dose, 0.25 milligrams of LSD tartrate orally, which would have been an appropriate amount if he was taking any of the other Sandoz ergot based drugs, such as ergotamine. A 0.25 milligram would be about the lowest active dose. Mm-hmm. Now, However, he had unknowingly synthesized one of the most potent drugs known to man, and he'd actually taken a dose about 10 times greater than the minimum <laughs> active dose of LSD. Yeah. It's crazy. So after he took this, uh, we have a little quote for you, which yeah. I think is pretty great of him uh, tripping out. Yeah. So he says, five o'clock, beginning dizziness, feeling of anxiety, visual distortions, symptoms of paralysis, desire to laugh. <laughs> He wrote this uh, then two days later, supplement of 421. Yeah, he's probably tripping too hard to <laughs> yeah. write anymore. <laughs> Home by bicycle from 6 to 8, most severe crisis. <laughs> most severe. That's just the most nonchalant, but yet, like, yeah. also, oh, it's uh, most severe, yes. How would you describe <laughs> that crisis? Most severe. Most severe crisis. <laughs> I would love to be a fly on the wall and see what he was. I know. It's the crazy. first guy to trip on LSD. And this is fondly known by some people as Bicycle Day. As we said, he was home by bicycle. It was wartime, so they were actually restricting uh, Uh, the gasoline. I see. Uh, I believe that's why he was home by bicycle. Um, Also, I don't think he could have drove pretty well. (laughs) I'm glad. (laughs) Maybe he would have done that anyways. Um, uh, 
but basically this is known as Bicycle Day, and it was the first ever LSD trip. Um, so this is funny. So he reported to his superiors. He's like, hey, man, uh, I took this drug, and it's pretty crazy. <laughs> um, and they were like, what are you talking about? We don't believe you. Mm-hmm. This is ridiculous. And he's like, hmm. Well, uh, why don't you go ahead and try it then if you don't believe me? And they were like, all right, we will. And, uh, and these are his bosses, the executives of this. <laughs> yeah, of the Swiss these, I imagine company. these uptight Swiss dudes. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> yeah, we don't believe him. We do not believe him. Yes, no, no. I'm not <laughs> And he's like, ah, well, uh, go ahead and see for yourself. And they're like, all right, we will. And so thus, the first people to trip out on LSD were a couple of, a couple of Swiss drug Gosh, executives. Wow. It's crazy. I wonder what they did. Did they just sit in their offices and like... Yeah, they just come back to Albert Hoffman and yeah. like, oh, we believe you. <laughs> yeah. Wow. yeah, I don't know what they did. That's weird. Um, but, so, I guess that's kind of how we made it from uh, ergot as a fungus mm. all the way to the first, one of the first semi-synthetic uh, drugs of LSD. Yeah. Sorry, not the first, but one of the most potent. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of why we titled it From Fungus to Bicycle Day. Um, so basically that's the it of our, uh, that's it for our first episode. Um, so hopefully we're going to continue on with this yeah. history of LSD. We're going to go into, of course, there's a lot about the sixties and seventies yeah. and this whole psychedelic movement. Yeah, we might have my mom on here. Yeah. Uh, it's for his mom uh, was part of the, uh, uh maybe allegedly, uh, allegedly yeah. we'll, find, we'll find out. So we're just going to kind of talk about that. Um, this is a good a time as any. I want to introduce this book. Oh, yeah. So a lot of the um, stuff we talk about um, is going to be – we researched other things a little bit deeper. But for a great understanding of all these psychoactive drugs, I really highly recommend this book called Drugged um, by Richard J. Miller, The Science and Culture Behind Psychotropic Drugs. Um this is a very great book. Uh, please check it out if you'd like to have a more in-depth um, knowledge of all these drugs. He really goes through it. I've read it a lot. Um, it also is on an audiobook. Go ahead and check it out. So I just wanted to plug that real quick because a lot of the stuff we get is going to be from um, old old Dick Miller here. So, um, yeah, and so I guess that's about it. Yeah. Um, you can find us on uh, on Twitter. And we're also going to uh, hopefully get a Patreon later on if that's ever going to work. Who knows? Um, And hopefully we'll be on Spotify and uh, iTunes. If they're listening to this, they they found it. Oh, that's right. But, oh, right. (laughs) Well, maybe we'll edit that out. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Bye-bye. Nice. That was a half hour. Half hour?